Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 225, Once More Unto the Breach. Last time, Brigadier Festing had launched his early morning attack against the French line just south of Anserain, and not much came of it. The attack to the far Allied left saw some men get past the French fort there, but to the right, the armored car advance had ended badly. And with the main attack getting pinned down, it had all been for naught. But Festing wasn't giving up just yet. As mentioned last time, Admiral Seifert was trying to do his part by having some of the fleet be ready to shell Aunt Serene, if only to speed up its surrender. But first things first. At 5.53 a.m., Seifert had the destroyer Devonshire move closer to the entrance of Diego Suarez Bay, that being the southern strip of land at its opening, the Arangia Peninsula. By 10 a.m., the Devonshire was about 10 miles or 16 kilometers east of Arangia, but learned that the Hermione was already there engaging the coastal guns. Hermione sent a signal to the Devonshire that she was running low on her larger shells, the ones that were needed for such an exchange. But the Devonshire had to husband her shells for the coming fight, and as the Arangia Peninsula coastal guns could not hurt the ships, if they moved back, and those guns could not fire on the Allied troops attacking the southern defensive line, called the Joffrey Line, it was decided to simply move back and find another way to crack this nut. But having two warships just sit there is kind of dangerous, so four minesweepers were sent to them to patrol for subs. Though there was one bright spot for the British forces— it was the south lanks that had penetrated the defensive line to the far left or west, and though some had been killed, wounded, or captured, the rest were ordered by Lieutenant Colonel West to cause as much trouble as possible. Thus, Major Osborne, leading B Company, found and overtook a wireless station. It was on the road that led to Anserain, so it was easy to spot. The lines were cut, and then Osborne set up his own defensive line there along the road. So as French forces from Anserain tried to resupply or reinforce the main defensive line, they were held back by this force, and this went on all day long. Further, remember that lost platoon from A Company that had gotten separated on their way to the end of the French line? Well, they had kept moving, and soon they ran into two enemy posts and destroyed them. All within were killed or captured. This was a good start, and Lieutenant Hall, the platoon leader, wanted to keep it going. So there were other engagements, and again, more French troops were either killed or captured. But this process had cost Hall lives. By the time he pulled back and took his men to brigade headquarters, he was down to just seven men. And yet, he had 250 prisoners with him. All told, these actions caused consternation and panic amongst the French troops along the line. In fact, some of the South Links got as close as 200 yards behind this main defensive line, and they shot into the backs of the defenders and then were themselves engaged. But it got worse for the French. Some 100 horses and mules were stolen by the South Links, but these animals were not taken to the British side, no that would have just been more work. Instead, a stampede was started on the French side 
to add to the confusion. And yet, for all this confusion and chaos behind the enemy's line, Major General Robert Sturgis, in charge of the land forces, was unaware of any of it, as his radio or the South Lanks radio wasn't working. So British confusion was equal to French confusion. Had Sturgis known, he might have thrown in his reserves and shattered the line right then and there, or at least try. But again, the radio was giving him nothing. And because the French guns on the line were not bothered, they bothered the Allies to no end. First, the Allied howitzers of the light battery had to pull back. Further, a pile of British ammunition had been hit by a French shell, sending it all skyward. The command post was also hit, and soon no battery could communicate with the observation post. That had been set up in the French tank ditch, but this position, too, would soon be untenable. The howitzers had fallen back to Col de Bonne Nouvelle, where this had all started. There, the two 25-pounders were already firing at the French, but the French were firing back, and they had more and larger guns. In fact, the French artillery was so intense, Festing and his officers assumed a counterattack was coming, so the men were set up in defensive positions along the road. The French never left their defensive line, but then again, they didn't have to. Clearly, a change was needed, so at 9.30 a.m., Major General Sturgis brought together his two brigadiers, Festing and Tarleton. They all agreed. It wasn't good. The 29th Independent Brigade had suffered too many casualties. The 17th Brigade was undertrained, and the French were well dug in, and showing that they were willing to give it all they had. And lastly, the South Lanks were somewhere, out there, to the west, alive, or not, who could say that Britain could perhaps, at this point, have already lost 1,000 men, had to be reported to London. It was, and the next day, May 7, 1942, Churchill quoted the number of 1,000 casualties to the House of Commons. Back to the deteriorating offensive, Admiral Seifert's ships were running low on fuel and water. Again, a change, a new approach was needed. As London had been updated about the fighting, so had Vichy back in France. Pétain was disgusted by the British for this and told Governor Annette that resistance must continue by every means and to the last cartridge. But leave it to Admiral Delon, the acting prime minister, to take it to the next level. Quote, Once again, the British, instead of fighting their enemies, seek the easiest path of attacking a French colony far from the metropolis. Firmly defend the honor of our flag, fight to the limit of your possibilities, and make the British pay dearly for their act of highway robbery. You are defending the honor of France. The day will come when England will pay. As for those men who were currently dishonoring France, once again, they were bashing themselves against the French defensive line, and they knew they couldn't win like this, but they couldn't pull back either. To do that would be to open themselves up to those French large guns. But the Allied troops couldn't stay there either. Word had already reached Sturgis that Vichy was gathering troops in the island's capital, modern-day Antanarova. But as that was about 600 miles or 965 kilometers to the south, it would take them a while to get to the British. 
But when they did move north, Brigadier Festing knew that he and his would be surrounded. But even worse, Vichy had already reached out to the Japanese for help. Now there was definitely a countdown to this British adventure. Yet Sturgis's closest concern were actually the enemy troops at Camp Dambra, hard upon Joffreville, about 20 miles or 32 kilometers to the south. As none of these options were desirable, Sturgis knew his only way to safety was north, through the defensive line in front of him, and inside and Serene. There the Royal Navy and the Air Arm could keep his men safe. Thus, a plan was made. Starting at noon, Anserain and the Vichy defensive line would be bombarded by planes and artillery for the rest of the day. Then the shooting would stop, and at which point, the less tired 17th Brigade would charge at the line, supported by the even more tired 29th Brigade. Meanwhile, the Navy would once again attack the guns at Arangia. As for the fleet air arm, they made that day a living hell for the Vichy pilots, shooting down four planes in one go. But it was the 29th Brigade that had to stay in place until that evening's attack. Yet before the shelling began in earnest at noon, the south lanks there had set fire to the brush near the defensive line, which drove the French snipers back. The Scots and lanks got a moment to catch their breath. Then the artillery started up, and it did not stop for hours. As Festi needed as much of a guarantee as he could get, at 3.30 p.m., he set out and led a few reconnaissance missions. And the results were positive, mostly. First, the Bren gun carriers were sent out, and due to the bombardment that the French had been suffering, their reaction was less intense than it had been previously. Next, he sent out his few remaining tanks, sure that this would bring out the heavy guns, but again the French response was measurably less than it had been before. And finally, it was time for boots on the ground. The Scots Fusiliers moved out and were able to get close to the line. Close enough that 50 prisoners were taken. All these were good signs. More good news, Sturge's primary concern was again the forces near Joffreville at Camp Dombra to the south. And indeed, those men were being loaded onto trucks to get to the rear of the Allied position. But Brigadier Festing had men sent out to look for movement, and thus they were able to trap 228 Vichy troops en route. That threat was removed. As for Festing's superior, Sturgis, he knew he needed more to make this plan work, so he drove to the beach, got aboard a vessel, and went to the HMS Romilly's to ask the Navy for help. Meeting Admiral Seifert, Sturgis urged that their attack had to happen before the moon rose at 11 p.m. In lieu of a massive military bombardment, as the British did not have enough big guns in place, Sturgis asked Seifert for a unit of Royal Marines. His idea was to land them to the rear of the answering positions and distract the French, which is when the main attack would come. Seifert agreed to this and told Captain Martin Price at 2.30 p.m. to gather 50 Royal Marines. They were to land at the port city and make a dash for the artillery commandant's house. That should turn many French guns their way, and away from Festing's men. If and when the Royal Marines' ruse worked, 
they were to then link up with Number 5 Commando, who would be coming from across the bay to the west. Once the Marines were away to board the destroyer HMS Anthony, Seifert, Sturgis, and some of the Admiral's staff gave their odds of success for the Marines. No one thought much of their chances, but something had to be done, or Operation Ironclad could fall apart on day two. Much was already to have been done by the end of day one. Of course, this meant that the HMS Anthony would have to sail into Diego Suarez Bay to unload the Marines. Would it be able to pass by the bay's entrance? And if it did, there were still plenty of guns around the bay to offer up resistance. The destroyer and the 50 Marines were about to be sacrificed. Still, this may work. Seifert, however, gave it a 10% chance of success. Captain Prince's Marines were loaded down with weapons and all the ammunition they could carry. And once on board the Anthony, she began to sail around the northern tip of the island to enter Diego Suarez Bay proper from the east. But being Marines and not sailors, soon most of the warriors were throwing up over the side. At 7.45 p.m., the sun had already set, the destroyer approached Diego Suarez Bay. The entrance is really just a break in the cliffs, which means the reefs to the north of the opening are quite treacherous. Not that Lieutenant Commander Hodges of the Anthony had time for that. He entered the bay at 22 knots. And right on cue, as the destroyer approached the entrance, a searchlight found the destroyer, and soon that was followed by shore batteries. But the Devonshire, still six and a half miles away, replied in kind, and the Hermione opened up with her eight-inch guns. Adding her might to the counterattack, the Anthony let loose with her two rear 4.7-inch guns. Soon, the French battery went quiet. The searchlight went out just before the guns. Was this due to a direct hit or a desire for those gun crews to live one more day? Either way, the Anthony had made it through with her vomiting Marines. The Anthony managed to miss the other damaged ships in the bay, and as she approached the specific jetty to drop off her Marines, machine gun fire from that same jetty gave the destroyer pause. The idea had been for Number 5 Commando to come across the bay and take control of this jetty to meet up with the Marines. The ugly truth was that the men of Number 5 Commando had been ready to cross the bay and had found two boats for the occasion, but their commander lost his nerve. He and his had seen and been through much in the last 24 hours. Still, the men were ready to charge forward, but their commanding officer was not. There were rumors that he was an alcoholic and he had been 24 hours without a drink and so collapsed. The attempt to cross the bay wasn't even attempted. Between the machine gun laying into the Anthony and having no friendly party on the jetty to assist, Lieutenant Commander Hodges put the engines in reverse and moved to the far end of the jetty. Fortunately there, there was a large warehouse between the machine gun and the Marines, so they were safe to disembark for the moment. The Marines broke into small groups and headed out. As the fires started earlier by the fleet's air arms attacks were still raging, this confusion helped the Marines get away from the jetty. Still, some of the Marines took time out of their busy schedule to thrash the enemy troops on the jetty 
that had been shooting at them. Moving out after that, Price's group got lost, but then managed to stumble upon the house of the artillery commandant. The commandant must have seen them coming, or suspected that he was a target, because he ran to the gatehouse at his entrance, and there the guards told him, We will keep you safe. Price took the main house, but with no commandant in it, he sent some of his men to the gatehouse. A short firefight ensued, but ended as the Marines started throwing grenades. The commandant surrendered. And now the Marines' adventures really takes off. Moving out, the Marines found the barracks and rushed inside, guns ready to go. But instead of French troops, there were British troops there, currently being POWs. Now, smiling at the rescuers, there were three army officers, 50 men of various ranks, three fleet air arm men, and Percy Mayer, the Ford Motor Come Spy. Mayer was set to be shot that morning. The Marines and their newly released POW friends looked around and found thousands of rifles and machine guns. And now those guns were in the hands of the Allies. The French defensive line would not be reinforced. Price and company had done their job. Price radioed an update to the Anthony, and the Anthony radioed the result of the raid to the Romilies. The last part of the message read, Operation complete successfully. Coast defense gunners require further practice. Meanwhile, back at the coming attack, the 17th Brigade was to have kicked off the assault when darkness came. But Sturgis held it up for a few hours to give the Marines a chance to complete their mission, which allowed the last of Tarleton's brigade to arrive. Problem was, they were done in, having disembarked and had been walking since that moment. As an officer of the Seaforth Highlanders remembered, before long, man after man began to drop at the side of the road, completely exhausted, and by the evening we were barely conscious of our actions. And trying to use this extra time wisely, men of the 2nd Battalion of the North Hampshire Regiment tried to get a closer look at the ground that they would soon be traversing. But the French were alert and kept them back. This lack of intel was matched by the soon-to-be attackers having no idea of the French defenses, nor exactly where their objectives were, and had no aerial photos to look over. An historian of the Northamptons would write, It is difficult to imagine circumstances less favorable to success. And at 8.15 p.m., the bombardment stopped, and 15 minutes later, the men of the 17th Brigade moved out, starting at 1,300 yards from the French guns. <laughs> ¶¶ 